This is Doug Jones, founder and CEO of Get Elected. The midterm elections were an unexpected challenge for Republicans across the country, but no one outworked our candidates and volunteers here in Pennsylvania. Regardless of the outcome, I want to congratulate every one of you on a hard-fought campaign season. On behalf of Republicans everywhere, thank you for all you do to preserve our heritage and beliefs. It's Saturday, folks, 1 p.m., time for The Elephant in the Room here on WJAS 1320 AM. This is your host, Sam DeMarco, joined by my executive director, John Schneider, the trusty man of few words, and our producer, dazzling Daryl Grandy, the guy that makes all the magic happen, who uh, takes and gets our guests on the radio and through to you, our valued listeners. So thank you much for, for joining us today. I can't tell you, I know that we are going to have a great show. I mean, as you folks recover from the Christmas holidays, I want to wish everybody Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. Um, you know, I know that politics may not be front and center, you know, in your minds, but unfortunately, I think for many of us, it still is. And you can't help but feel that way if you watch the evening news. So I am so happy today to be joined by a special guest, uh, Selena Zito. Selena is a nationally syndicated columnist, your Washington Examiner, the Post-Gazette, former writer for the Trib, and a native of Pittsburgh here in Allegheny County. I can't tell you again how happy I am to have her today. Uh, and Selena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, listen, I can't tell you. Thank you for being here. You know, uh, Selena, I one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have you on the show is, you know, uh, all our, our listeners and our, the readers out there, they're inundated with information from many folks giving their opinions and viewpoints and not necessarily the news. But I've always been struck how you have a much better sense of the feeling of the body politic, you know, that's out there and what the average person is feeling, you know. Now, as you travel, you know, the Commonwealth and I'll be at the country, I mean, I know you're on the road right now. Uh, what are you seeing out there? Well, I think I understand the average person because I am the average person. <laughs> and, I, and, and I come from an average family on the north side of Pittsburgh. I went to Perry High School, and, and I have always been blessed. I have, I have three full-time jobs. I work for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Uh, which, by the way, it is always a thrill to work for your hometown newspaper. I mean, it's just a thrill. I also uh, work for the Washington Examiner, and I'm also a columnist for the New York Post. Oh, I forgot the Post uh, there. Yes, sorry. And, and I'm also syndicated in, like, 70 newspapers across the country. Um, but my approach to covering American politics is to try to keep the stories as local as possible. So when I travel, like I am today across West Virginia, because West Virginia is going to be a big deal in the next uh, election cycle. Um, mm -hmm. Does Joe Manchin run? Does he not? Does Governor Jim Justice run for the Senate seat? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts going on. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so... And, and West Virginia, to me, is such a fascinating state because 10 years ago, every elected official was a Democrat, and today every elected official up and down the ballot, with the exception of Joe Manchin, is now a Republican. That is quite a cultural and political change mm -hmm. for a state to go through. 
But when it, the way I re- approach uh, uh, covering American politics is that I don't fly. I also don't take the, the turnpike or 79 or mm-hmm. 70 or whatever, you know, highway that you think of. I only take the back roads, so U.S. roads. Right now I'm on U.S. 30, which is the Lincoln Highway. And, um, you know, and there's a reason that I do that. Because if you, if you fly, or even if you're on the turnpike or the interstate, you miss everything that is happening between point A and point B. You don't see how a community is doing. You don't see how um, a neighborhood, a county, to, to understand what's going on in politics, you first have to understand what is happening in a community. And so that's why I approach whatever I'm covering in in that manner. And um, I, I also never stay in a hotel. I must always, always stay in a, a bed and breakfast, mainly because these are owned by small businesses, uh, that uh, small business people, and they always know where all the bodies are buried in town. Like <laughs> they know all the gossip, mm-hmm. right? Right. So that helps me understand a community when I'm covering it. Well, you know, the methodology that you, as you're explaining to us behind how you cover this is just fascinating. And, you know, one of the things that has always struck me that separates you from many other columnists out there is that every column that I've read of yours, without fail, always introduces a couple of the local characters. And I shouldn't say characters, but the folks that you've spoken to and how what's taking place is important in their lives, you know, or yeah, how? I think that's, I think that's really important mm-hmm. to be able to tell a, a, a region or a community or a town or a neighborhood or a street story through the eyes of the people that live in it. And, and n- no one is a better advocate and, and critic and, and, or has more experience than those who, who, um, who live in that community. And, and if we don't try to see how things are impacting, uh, uh, how decisions that are made either in the state house or the state senate or the U.S. house or the U.S. Senate or in the White House impact their lives, um, you know, th- I think that's a really important part of being a, a good reporter. You know, I don't write stories for clicks. Um, I write stories to tell good stories mm-hmm. and, and, and to introduce people and just to, to people that they might not ever meet or know. I mean, I absolutely love the piece I did last week for the Post-Gazette on the um, on, on Coach Mark Warfield mm-hmm. in, in Aliquippa. yep. To the Quip, right? What yep. a fascinating story about this this man, just his backstory. But also what he's teaching these young kids who are, by the way, you know, playing up, I think, three or four. Um, I think it's like uh, three levels. They're yeah. Three levels up. Uh, yep. Talk about punching up. But he's not just teaching him the value of being a good athlete. He's teaching him the value of being a good man, of mm-hmm. being a good member of your community. And and those are the kinds of people I like to bring to light for readers. And by the way, if people want to read my um, the work that I do, they can just go to my website. It has all the places I work. It's just selenazito.com. 
and um, they can sign up for the emails. It's free, it's fun, and it's not fattening. I mean, if you follow me, unlike <laughs> your baking, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, my, my baking is ridiculously fattening. No, no, listen, that that that, that is a uh, that's that's a great perspective on the stories you write, why you write them. And, you know, uh, you've heard the old phrase way back in the day, there's gold in them, there are hills, okay? Yeah. Um, in regards to politics, Republicans would do well to pay attention to the stories that you're writing and the things that you're uncovering as you talk to the people in these communities because this gets back to all politics is local, Okay. And I think one of the reasons why we failed, you know, to have the results that we hope to in the midterms and, you know, and we failed in other elections is because we fail to address the issues that matter to the people in that community. You know, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's not always the stuff you see on the evening news. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a piece and this is, I had a bunch of really very great pieces not because I wrote them, but because of the people I wrote about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, um, I went to the uh, Latin Mass in um, on the north side of Pittsburgh, and what an amazing community! What an amazing experience! And and you know, these are the people that need not because they're Catholic, but just people need to be listened to, and what is important to them needs to be listened to. And I think that's the thing that politicians on both sides of the aisle have really not done a good job at, and that's, you know, listening. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think, you know, listening is a skill in and of itself. And, right. and I believe that many folks, they lack that. You know, politicians or people that aspire to be political figures oftentimes feel that, you know, their job is to go out and just give speeches. You know, but like a good salesperson the most critical skill you can have is the one of listening because, you know, in sales, and that's what I did most of my career, I believe that I couldn't sell you anything but that you could buy. So if I listened to what it was that you were looking for or told me that you needed and then turned around and presented it as being able to deliver it, the chances of my our doing business were greatly enhanced. I think the same is true here in politics. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, you to be a good leader and to earn people's uh, votes requires you to be able to listen. But also, there there is a requirement, I believe, is to get in there and experience their lives. And too often, um, people running for office um, don't understand that. They don't understand how important it is for someone's vote that they're trying to earn for you to have experience what they experience. Uh, that doesn't mean you do, that you have to live their life, but you have to be able to walk in their shoes and say, you know what, I get why this is important to them. And, and I think that the re- reason that Republicans had, had a big failure rate is in this election cycle, in a, in a cycle that they should have done really, really well in, is that they were there was too much shouting, there was too much name calling, and there wasn't enough discussion about what was most important. 
Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, as we sit here and we try to examine, you know, what took place and try to understand, you know, why it happened and things like that. We can't. It, 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 it happened for a very simple reason. And I think there's a lot of people that are begrudgingly starting to understand. But, you know, there were a lot of candidates out there that were running under the Republican um, um, on the Republican side who weren't necessarily all the 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 ones that people were naturally fit with their community. But there was an um, over effort by the former president that really impacted uh, primary elections, not just for the U.S. Senate, but not just for governor, but down ballot as well. And and um, the, these were voters that these were candidates that voters weren't exactly, you know, that wasn't their kind of candidate, but they did it because they believed in the former president. Mm-hmm. However, I think in the final days of the election, when he decided that it would be a great idea to call former uh, or not former um, <laughs> uh, current governor uh, Ron DeSantis names here in western pennsylvania as well as glenn youngkin um the a lot of voters and i've spoken to hundreds of them that said look i just can't spend two years listening to to these people being having to answer for everything that he says doesn't mean that i didn't like what the former president did it doesn't mean that i didn't like the policies he put forward but I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And, and that, that, that is a, a fresh burst of honesty here. You know, I love to hear it because I feel the same way. Um, you know, here in Pennsylvania, you know, leading up to the election, I had thought that we had the wind at our backs. We were dealing with a president here who, you, you know, you we had $5, at one point, $5 a gallon gas. Yeah. You know, uh, we had the humiliation in Afghanistan. We had soaring inflation. We had supply chain shortages. We had all these different things. And what happened? You know, John Fetterman didn't beat Dr. Oz because Fetterman is a juggernaut, although he raised a tremendous amount of money. But he beat Dr. Oz because, you know, Dr. Oz, although I think he was a great, a good man, okay, um, people didn't see him is fitting, you know, within their community or believe that he understood, you know, the issues that were important to them. And I think that's hurt. And, you know, and the Republican Party, as we seek to try to come up with answers to these losses and what to do about them, like, for example, people are talking about, you know, tactics like mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots and the use of early voting is important for us, but that's not the answer in and of itself. You know? No, but it needs to be part of the solution. Right. Republicans, look, whether you like mail-in balloting or not, it is where the, that is where the game is played right now. And you cannot change mail-in balloting unless you have a majority. And you can't get a majority if you're not playing in the same sandbox as the Democrats. So whether you like it or not, you have to do mail-in balloting. You have to be able to to track your voter. You have to make sure that they're showing up. And if they didn't, you call them or you text them or you knock on the door and you get them to the to the to the ballot box, or, or if they haven't used their um, their mail-in ballot. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, you know, there, I've said this 
repeatedly that we're running a 100-yard race against the Democrats and giving them a 40-yard head start, you know, yeah. and we can't possibly make up for the 50 days of early voting in 13 hours on election day. You know, and when I talk to folks, I'll hear repeatedly, well, I hate mail-in ballots. I tell them, so do I, but I hate losing even more. <laughs> you know, and I hope you do as well, right? <clears throat> so, meaning the, to the voters. So, uh, look, you're absolutely right. You know, if we're smart, we'll take advantage of the roles that, we, that are in place today and use them to our advantage, right? There's no reason we should be ceding this, uh, you know, battlefield, so to speak, you know, to the other side without even attempting to compete. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as we start to look forward to 2024, and my gosh, I mean, it was like, you know, in terminal the last two years here uh, from 2020 to 2022, we had high hopes. Uh, and now with just a few exceptions, you know, really be Florida and then New York with their congressional races. You know, the majority that we have in the House is uh, is much, much smaller than anticipated. You know, what advice would you have for Republicans as they look to build toward 2024? Well, I would... <laughs> I would say that going into and I and I and I think that that McCarthy has won all the votes here, uh, the House members. But it's a, it is important that you go in unified, um, and and not go in um, with with that battle um, on you. And and I think I uh, I think it's important um, to be able to maybe get a, a couple. Uh, um, uh, Things passed, like in you know, uh, get get things across the um, finish line that have to do with the border, that have to do with crime, and 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 do it with your with with Democrats to show that you're not just been a you've not just been brought into office to um to um be a, a disruptor, but that also you want to get things done. People really do want people to get things done. And the most critically important things right now are um, is the border, but also is the um, um, is crime, mm -hmm. and 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 also you know we've got to uh, unravel our energy problem. Well, you know you you're talking about this, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I think that's part of the reason why we lost. I believe that Republicans need to stand for something. And not yeah. just against things, okay? Yeah. And, uh, you know, even though we disagreed vehemently with many of the things that the Democrats were proposing, whether it be student loan bailouts or, you know, any of the myriad other things, bad ideas that they pull from the trash heap of history and try to resurrect, <clears throat> we failed to offer an alternative. Right. You know, um, I had gotten a call from a reporter who was asking me, saying, he had heard, he said that he had been hearing that if the Supreme Court, you know, uh, um, rejected uh, Biden's student loan bailout, that Republicans would be held uh, electorally responsible at the polls. And he asked if I thought it was true, and I said, it depends. I said, first, I said, we're not taking anything away because it wasn't Biden's to give in the first place. I said, but if we fail to recognize that the soaring cost of higher education is a problem for people, you know, then potentially we are. And I just use that as an example 
mm-hmm. whether it be crime, whether it be health care, whether it be you know the cost of higher education, whether it be immigration, <clears throat> we need as Republicans, we need to offer solutions. And I believe that Republicans and as our party, because we are fragmented, that our party needs to recognize that, hey, you're not always going to get everything that you want, you know, on the first go around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, you talked about uh, um, Congressman McCarthy and his quest to become the speaker, you know, and you continuously read these folks are holding out and pushing back and, you know, I don't know what's going through some people's head. And it's not just happening in Washington. You have it here in Pennsylvania. In Harrisburg, for the first time after losing the House, State House since 2010, a large group of legislators have decided they're going to form their own Freedom Caucus in the House. As if the reason we lost wasn't, we aren't extreme enough. Yeah, that's um, that's like um, um, AOC saying that the reason that that the Democrats lost was because they weren't extreme enough. I mean, you know, Americans send Washington or Harrisburg a message with each election. And, um, and both the state capitol and the U.S. capitol misread it every time. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect example of it. You did not lose because you weren't extreme enough. You lost because you, um, wouldn't get things done, that you weren't for something. That's why Republicans didn't win. That's why there was was a split decision, because voters are unhappy with all y'all. Right. And and polls were showing that. It's just when it came down to making a choice, you know, and and either coloring in that circle on the ballot or pulling that lever, you know, we just weren't presenting them a compelling enough choice for them to to, to vote in our favor. It's disappointing. But, you know, we we also have that at the local level in our committees you know there is a fringe that uh joined the committees and you know they got involved in in all the counties across the commonwealth and probably throughout the country you know and they did so because they listened to like Steve Bannon's war room or something like that and they were determined to take over the Republican party okay again have- to our point where we talked about they believed, you know, we're not extreme enough, okay? Uh, and again, this is just a recipe, you know, for failure. Absolutely. It's the most ridiculous thing I've I've ever heard. And I, I will have a story about that in the beginning of the year. But this is all to saturate their egos and not because they're listening to the constituencies that surround them in their community. Well, a- a- absolutely. And I think one of the disappointing things for me is that, you know, you, you always try to tell the truth, okay? Is to see that so many people out there that are purporting to be leaders in these movements have no problem at all just telling outright falsehoods, you know, regarding an election. And, and then when called on it or called out because they have no evidence or proof of anything, they just move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's entertaining, However, um, it is, it is, uh, does not a leadership make. And, and these situations always fall apart. They always do. You, they, they always do. It doesn't always happen exactly when, you know, immediately, but it definitely happens. Well, I, I came up, Selena, in the, through the Tea Party movement. You know, I mean, my first got involved really in the political process here 
back in the 2009 time frame. You know, at mm-hmm. the time, there were a number of Tea Party groups. They all had leaders. Uh, and, and, and someone had told me from one of the national groups that basically the shelf life, you know, for a grassroots leader was about 14 to 18 months, you know, yeah. because you could only, you know, they, they burn brightly yeah. and can burn intensely, but they do burn out after that period of time, right? <laughs> so yeah. you know that the movements, some of these splinter you know, yeah. movements are, are, you know, aren't going to be there, especially the ones that aren't rooted, you know, in fact. Okay. But, uh, at the same time, it's difficult to move forward as a party when you constantly have to fight a rear guard action, right. you know, from folks that are biting at your ankles, uh, here. And I know that, you know, many of the county chairs across the Commonwealth are facing that. And many of the folks across this country are facing it. You know, Republicans, we always laugh. We talk about uh, difficulty of being like herding cats, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but but it, that really is. That really is the case. But, hey, we're going to have to take a commercial break. And we'll be right back. Hopefully, you can stick around with us for the second segment. You got it. Thanks. Folks, this is Sam DeMarco, host of The Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM. We'll be right back after this message. The midterm elections are in the rearview mirror, and now it's time to start finding great school board candidates for 2023. Convince the right candidates to run using the Get Elected app for easy-to-understand voter data and analysis, canvassing tools, and more. Visit getelected.org and show them the path to victory. Get elected. Campaign with confidence. Folks, welcome back to the Elephant in the Room here on WJAS 1320 AM. We're here with our guest for the first segment here, Selena Zito, nationally syndicated columnist and a Pittsburgh native who writes one of the three papers she writes for exclusively is the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, hometown paper. Selena, thanks for staying with us here. (laughs) Thanks so much. I should let you know that my grandfather worked for the Pittsburgh Press. He also worked for the Sun-Telegraph. My great-grandfather worked for an early alliteration of the Post-Gazette called the the Gazette, and then my great-great-grandfather worked for an earlier newspaper in the area called The Post. So, you know, my family has been in covering news and writing stories in this area for a couple hundred years. Wow. Wow. You know what? I bet you they crossed uh, paths with some of my relatives. Uh, My great-grandfather, grandfather, my uncle, you know, and my cousins all worked for the press as pressmen. Uh, oh, that's, you know. that's very, very cool. And my daughter is uh, a photojournalist, and she is most of the time is doing photos with me. So oh, wow. The, 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 uh, the uh, legacy continues. Well, that is, that, that is awesome. That, that is awesome, you know. And uh, to, be able to, hey, to be able to do something you love and to do it with members of your family, I mean, does it get any better than that? Yeah, I, no, it doesn't. As long as you love what you're doing, I'm. You know, uh, Pittsburgh is one of these unique places. You know, it's not that often that you see a family business go to the third generation. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen, let alone the fourth. However, I find myself covering stories that do reach into the third and fourth generation. In, in not just in Pittsburgh, but also in sort of the whole western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, uh, north uh, Panhandle of West Virginia, where that is very, very common. And, and I think that goes to the rootedness and the sense of 
place that that people that live in this part of Appalachia feel um, about where they're from. You know, I, I think these are stories that need to be told, you know, and I, I can't thank you enough for doing it because, you know, today, in today's like, you know, online world, we're inundated with information, but it's a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Okay. Right. So you really don't right. learn, you know, about the history and, you know, the fabric of what, what made the community. I was telling uh, John here earlier, right before the holiday, <clears throat> you know, I had come across, I was looking something up online and I came in across an article. Uh, uh, it's on, it's, it was written uh, by some former um, reporters, but it's at the <laughs> University of Pittsburgh Institute of Politics. But it talks about the history of politics in Allegheny County from like the 1930s up through 1995. Yeah. You know, and it's interviewing and you're, you're getting their perspective. And I mean, you're learning about Davy Lawrence and the folks that he worked with. You're yeah. learning about how we switched over and how it went from Republicans to Democrats. You're learning about the battles, you know, with the Forrester and Stacey, you know, with the Flaherty's, okay. With Cowajori, yeah. you know, all, all these different things with the Dunn and Cranmer and Deweedy years. Okay. And I mean, I just found it fascinating. I told John, and shared the article with him. But, uh, you know, when I started reading, it was like 83 pages. I couldn't put it down, you know? So oh, yeah. the, the, the work that you're doing and uh, just sharing these insights, you know, with your readers, I think is just is a very valuable, very valuable oh. to, to the folks. Well, if it wasn't for Pete Flaherty, 12-year-old Selena would have not seen the Immaculate Reception. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, tell us because, that story. Because... So my best friend in high school, his brother, Pete, also named Pete, mm-hmm. was running Flaherty's campaign. I think it was for U.S. Senate. Um, I could be wrong. It was something that he was going to run for. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was mayor. I, I, I'm, I'm in the car, so I can't look. I can't line the dates up or, or the offices up. However, he had asked. He said, hey, well, I'll pay you $2 if you two go down. Uh, and I think we had to split the $2, now I think of it. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like a lot of money. If you two go down and pass out literature for me in front of Three River Stadium. And we're like, $2? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we went down, and we passed them out. It was really cold. I remember it was cold, and it was snowing off and on. And as we were getting ready to leave, when the game started, there was a, a very inebriated gentleman that motioned over to me and said, Hey, kid, I can't go to this game. Here, take my ticket. <laughs> and I had never been to a Steeler game. I don't think anybody in my family had been to a Steeler game. Oh, wow. Uh, the stadium had been pretty new. The Steelers still weren't a winning team, although that year they were, for the first time, possibly heading to the playoffs, although no one ever thought that they were going to. So I, along with my friend, just went into the game. And honestly, I mean, I'd be lying if I remember, if I said I would remember the play. I remember that he scored, but I don't remember seeing that immaculate reception. Well, but, they, they, didn't, um, they didn't have instant replay back then. So it wasn't yeah, like you could watch it on the scoreboard. Yeah, and I feel like we waited forever to find out if he actually scored that touchdown. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone in the stadium was convinced he did. Uh, I doubt that everyone in the stadium was actually watching. There were a lot of other really drunk people. Um, but yes. 
But, you know, that was Allegheny County politics is why I uh, ended up at the at that game. Well, look at that. You know, hey, you know, part of history, part of history there in two ways, you know, part of the Flaherty campaign and, uh, you know, getting to witness the Immaculate Reception. Uh, you know, I was, uh, yeah. <clears throat> this was last week. I happened to be downtown and was visiting one of our taverns for a cocktail. And I was talking to a number of the guys that were in town to film for the, uh, for the, for the football game. And these guys, they're the cameramen and the audio guys. And we're just sitting around having a drink. And uh, they were talking and then one guy brought up, and this is a long lost story that the referee, when he went to the sideline and got on the, you know, the headset there to call upstairs, you know, folks still want to know who he was talking to, but you know, rumor has it that he called somebody and said, Hey, do you have, is there any way to get us out of here? You know, if uh, this doesn't go this way. And that was like, nope, touchdown. <laughs> you know. So, hey, whether that's true or not, it's a great story. And, uh, you know, it's, hey, it, it is a shame while we're talking about that. It is a shame that Franco Harris passed away just a few days before he would have been able to enjoy the 50th anniversary and uh, saw how much he meant to the people of the city of Pittsburgh. But that, it was just reminded me very much of Willie Stargell. Yes. Dying the same day uh, PNC Park opened. Yep. Um, I was I was helping with those celebrations as a volunteer with the aviary, and they were going to release doves when when they honored him at that game, mm-hmm. and and we had practiced with him. So I got to talk. What a nice gentleman, by the way. Oh yeah. And so we released doves still, but it was a memoriam, not with him. Right. You know, we've been, you know, when we think about the things that, that matter in life, we've been fortunate here to be witness in Pittsburgh to some really incredible and great athletes and also people oh, yeah. who were so civically minded. You know, you, yeah. I mean, you can go back and, I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, ancient history, but, you know, I grew up watching Roberto Clemente, you know, and Willie Stargell. You oh, know, we saw yeah. with Franco Harris and these guys with the Steelers. And, you know, look at Mel Blunt and how involved, you know, he still is in the community and Rocky Blyer. You know, Mario yeah. Lemieux, I mean, Absolutely. my gosh, what, you know, what can anyone say that hasn't been said about what this guy I, did? Absolutely. I was, God, I feel like the Forrest Gump of Pittsburgh. I was, <laughs> at, I, I was at the game when Clemente hit his 3,000 hit. Against the Mets. It was, was John Matlack, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was the last, it was his last game. It was yeah. his last hit. It was a and, double, I think. And, yep. Yep. Yep, and 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 I can still see him standing there, just you know, like, hey, no big deal. I'm yeah, just hands on his hips, doing my job. Yep, hands yeah, on his hips exactly. there, second base. Yep. Wow. And months later, you know, right around was it January second or third? I mean, I was in grade school um, when he was maybe like ninth, eighth grade, something like that. When he um, when that plane went down, and I just remember. I went to a Catholic school on Pittsburgh's north side, and we were praying for him. We were praying that he would be found. Oh, yes. Um, Same here. So. Yep. Yeah, I, was going to, I went to St. Mary of the Mount, you know, and I remember, you know, because back then we listened to the radio because oh, all these yeah. things weren't on television, you know. And, uh, no. you know, I remember when I heard, got the first got the news on the radio that he had, uh, his plane had gone down. Yes, that was devastating. And watching the news, the follow-ups, as they, you know, looked in Puerto Rico and, you know, they're getting stuff on the beaches and, uh, you know, but just looking for him. Yeah, what a, what a shame. What a shame. Absolutely. 
Well, you know, you talked about, you you mentioned uh, humorously for being Forrest Gump, right? <clears throat> Somebody that was yeah. witness to so many things in history. But, <laughs> you know, but to bring this back, you know, full circle, we were talking about politics here and a couple of things. I mean, in Allegheny County, you know, we weren't witnesses. We weren't alive at the time. But uh, when this moved with Davy Lawrence from Republicans to Democrats, okay, yeah. and then you were just talking about driving through West Virginia where we've seen the sea change there that's taken place, you know, we're a yeah. solidly Democratic state has gone Republican, you know, much based upon the the terrible positions of the Democrats in regards to that state's ma- major industry mining, you know, and other concerns. But, but being yeah. a resident here in Allegheny County, you know, and just, I mean, again, uh, as a journalist, you're neutral, but what do you think needs to happen or, you know, for Republicans to once again be able to play, you know, a role here in county politics other than that which we are today? you know, which is minor because of the registration disadvantage. I think it's not impossible for a Republican to win uh, a handful of county seats, uh, county council seats. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's impossible to win the uh, the county executive seat. I think what you have to do is run good quality candidates. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that Republicans need to do is not expect to run and win, but to expect to run and have a good message, expect to run and have good candidates, and to not fall in the traps of the different sort of people yelling in your ear, but to have just have good, solid candidates, and eventually Republicans will win. It's what Democrats did with state house seats this year. You just keep running until you eventually win, and you have to have a good message. And you have to be able to understand that you're going to lose, mm-hmm. but eventually your your that relentlessness is going to earn the voters' confidence and their vote. Well, I think that I think really uh, that an opportunity does exist here in 2023, you know, potentially yeah. for a good county executive candidate because you know right now, if you look at what's happening, you know, progressives have making been making big inroads in the Democratic Party, so they've been winning some elections but they haven't been delivering results, particularly not for the people. And we see that in the problems that we're facing in the city of Pittsburgh. Now, you know, you have uh, a state house candidate or state house representative who's put her name forward, who many believe is the leader, you know, and and, and could emerge victorious from that uh, primary. And if that were to happen, you know, I think all bets are off because I think the people of Allegheny County are, are looking for somebody that, as you said previously, just wants to get things done, you know, on behalf of the folks. And even though, you know, I disagreed at times with uh, all three of the previous county executive candidates, I would say for the most part, Jim Roddy, Dan Honorado, and Rich Fitzgerald have governed from a centrist type perspective, you know, more pragmatically, more focused on economic development and jobs. So we've been fortunate as a region. If we were to get a bad county executive, you know, that could really have a significant impact you know, and, and damage, you know, our community. So I think, you know, there could be a compelling story here if we have a good candidate who has a good message, you know, and hopefully we could skip some of those losses and uh, make this a competitive race. So that's what we're focused on trying to do this year. And I think that, I think that's really smart because the Democrats, whoever wins, it's going to be an ideological win. Mm -hmm. And 
very, very different from Rich Fitzgerald, who has been an incredibly great, pragmatic manager. Mm-hmm. He's been a good manager. He understands the economy of the business community, and Oh, yes. I I can tell you that, uh, you know, I've worked with him for the last seven years that I've been on county council. We don't always agree on things. You know, I was texting him because he was picked as, uh, you know, man of the year here by a Pittsburgh magazine. So I texted him this morning on an article. When I first met him back in 2015, you know, he told me that he wakes up every day. His number one, you know, objective is is jobs. How can he bring jobs that to the region? And I know he meets with businesses and asks them, what can he do? Or what can government do, you know, to help create conditions in which they'd be willing to expand, you know, and hire more people? He talks to the universities and asks them, what can he do to help them take the ideas that are emanating out of the universities and turn them into businesses that can create jobs for the folks here? So, you know, while we don't agree on everything, uh, he does show the respect of listening. And I don't think you can ask for anything more, you know? So, no, I think I've personally have had a good working relationship with him. And, you know, I worry about what the future holds if we were to get an ideologue in that position, you know, and not a pragmatist. Today, there's not a pragmatist on the Democrat side. Right. And if the Republicans are smart and you get some good, and, and, and that's what Rich was. He was a good businessman. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, that was his success story. The Republicans need the absolutely same thing, and they need someone who is willing to be pragmatic and a good manager and bring new businesses here. Yeah, I think Rich, I think Rich Fitzgerald, um, but also Dan Onorado and Jim Roddy mm-hmm. were very, very, very good managers. They understood that their job was to grow business, grow development, attract new people to live in the region, and to attract new businesses. And while they all three had to raise their ideological flag when a candidate came to town, when it came to the daily running of the, of the, of the county, they were very good managers, all of them. And I think that if you are, as the chair of the local Republicans, are able to attract a savvy business-type person who would be able to sit down and talk to workers in the energy field, but also attract a, a multi-billion dollar company to come to the region, then that's the, that's what the strength that you run on. You don't run on ideology, not for this job. Well, I'm very optimistic, Selena. We've had some conversations with some key executives, you know, from some major businesses here in the county that yeah. are concerned about the future direction and, and, and are looking at this. <clears throat> Hopefully I'll have some news to be able to share here soon. But uh, I'm very optimistic that we will have somebody, you're running on that message. Because, you know, when I sat down with Rich back in 2015, and I shared just a few minutes ago how the first thing he told me was his, when he wakes up every day, he said that he's focused on jobs. But he also, in this article that it was in Pittsburgh Magazine, said that his proudest day and happiest day here was when he saw the results of the census that was published in August of last year, which showed that Allegheny County had actually grown. You know, because that is one of the things we've been dealing with. You had a city of Pittsburgh that went from 720,000 people back in the 1950s to just over 300,000, you know, today. Yeah. So, you know, uh, trying to just stem that outflow of our kids and our grandchildren and and everybody else leaving here. You know, we talk about one of the, we talk about Steeler Nation, and that's always one of the amazing things when people watch you know, the football games and they see how many Steeler fans were at these away games. Yes, a lot of folks from here do travel. 
But uh, what you're seeing is a lot of people that grew up here Unless. that were forced, right, that were forced to relocate yeah. because they yeah. need to get jobs, you know? Yep. And I think yep. that's, that's, a, uh, that's a testament to the wise governing or administration, you know, of the county. And that's something that we need to continue. You know, many people, they have no idea how big that job is. We have a budget right. of over $3.015 billion. That's billion with a B. You have over 7,000 employees, 750 square miles. I mean, this isn't, it, it, this isn't a fun job, like, you know, not to demean anyone in the state legislature, but where you're a legislator, you're one of 203. Right. You know, if you want to, if you get sick or stay home or take a day off or something, you, you can get away with that. Right. You know, you can't do that as a county executive. No, and I think that's the thing that the Democrats, I, I, I fear that they're not, they're, their lesson that they're going to believe that they learned for the past two years in local politics is that progressivism and being stridently ideological is what wins. Look at uh, Mayor Ed Ganey. Uh, look at uh, Summer Lee, who will soon be Congress Congresswoman Summer Lee. And look at uh, U.S. Senator, or soon to be U.S. Senator John Fetterman. All of these, uh, all three of those ran as ideologues, and all three won. And you see the trouble that Ganey is having. He's really struggling with with the cultural and societal problems that we are having in our city when it comes to homelessness and drug abuse and crime. And he's been unable to navigate it. Um, and his response has been very political as opposed to problem solving. And I fear that Democrats have not learned that and will continue that sort of flailing with Lee and Fetterman because they believe they won for the wrong reason. They didn't win because of their ideology. They ran because nobody wanted the other guys. Right. Absolutely. And that gets back to what we talked about in the first segment, you know, the need to select candidates that are good fits for their districts. Okay. And not based upon other things like, you know, either national issues or because of endorsements made by folks who may not understand those local issues, you know, and it's it's just something that we're going to have to deal with. I mean, you mentioned Congressman-elect Summer Lee, and I think I've told this story before, but, you know, prior to the election, she sat down with a number of the universities and others who talked about the request for grants and things they have down in Washington, you know, money that they hope to get to be able to help and do research or things or projects here at home. And she waved them off and said, that's not why I'm going there. I don't do that. She goes, it's all about social justice. Yeah, well, she didn't learn. And I have a piece this Sunday in the Post-Gazette about Mike Doyle. You know, (laughs) Representative Mike Doyle has never been the first guy to run to the microphone when the cable is around. He's not the guy that takes the social media, but he has been very instrumental in bringing a lot of money back to this region. He just has quietly done And yes, when he needs to be ideological, he is. However, he always understood that his most important job was um, getting money for the district, um, infrastructure money, if there was blood, um, or whatever the case may be. Oh, right. I don't think that's the way that Summer Lee is going to operate, and I don't think that the constituency that elected her has a full grasp of understanding how much of, what was the word we used when we were kids, rebel riser she is? (laughs) Yes. She, Mike Doyle operated on the most important thing was the district. She operates on the most important district. The most important thing is her. 
So this will be a really interesting exercise in seeing how the constituency reacts to that, because we have a history, in, in again, with that seat in this region, you look at who held that seat in that in the past, Billy Coyne, Bill Moorhead, Rick Santorum, John Hines. These are all, you know, nose-to-the-ground hard mm-hmm. workers, and this is very, very different kind of member of Congress. Well, I think, yeah, if she, if she chooses to continue to act the way that she has, I think that that could present opportunities for a Republican in 2024. Well, know? I think if you remember Harris Wofford, Nice guy, super Mm -hmm. nice guy. He was appointed by Bob Casey when John Hines died. And there's one reason and one reason only Harris Wofford did not win that election the following year and lost to Rick Santorum in 1994, 92, 94. I think it was 94. 94, yeah. 94. But Harris Wofford lost because he had no constituent services in his, in his, um, at his state district offices. You know, that's the most important thing a member of Congress does outside of bringing money home is answering those problems. No, absolutely. Yep. And he didn't have one. He was just, he lumped the cock I mean, he was hanging out with Teddy Kennedy. Um, and he was intellectualizing. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that concerns us here locally is, you know, we have two in Allegheny County. You have two new Congress members. So you have Summer yeah. Lee in the city of Pittsburgh, has the city of Pittsburgh and then to Westmoreland County. And then you also have Chris Deluzio here yeah. in Congressional District 17. Both of them are new. Both of them will have new staff, okay? Yeah. So that, that doesn't bode well for the people here, you know, who are looking for help or assistance, you know, from their congressmen. And then also you couple that with you're going to have a new senator, okay, and John Fetterman. And, uh, I mean, I don't think this guy – I talked to someone from Politico who told me that, you know, his – new chief of staff had said that he was going to be acting as a surrogate for a while. So, you know, who knows when they're going to get that office up and running. Right. And so there are a lot, a lot of concerns. And, you know, I feel for the people of the Allegheny County and the city of Pittsburgh here, if they need help or assistance, call Bob with the federal services. Yeah. That's what they're going to have to do though. You know, has he gone back into hiding, you know, after the election? Hey, Selena. Well, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Good. No, well, you know, I mean, a million years ago, I was a constituent staff person for Arlen Specter. I was too. Um, oh wow! In my in my in my youth, and I learned more about the federal government and understanding how it functions than I ever learned one day in college. And it is a maze. It is full of bureaucracy. But your job working for a member of Congress or the member of the U.S. Senate is to serve the people of your state. And you have to get them answers. And Spectre expected no one to have to wait. And and whether it's a veteran's benefit or workers' comp or, I mean, there's a multitude of things that your U.S. Senator and your member of Congress does for you. And if you do not have professionals running those, um, uh, those offices, I'm going to just tell you, people will get up in arms. I saw it with Harris Wofford. Well, we're going to see what happens. You know, it's going to be interesting. Selena Zito, thank you so much for joining us on the Elephant in the Room here today. And, hey, I want to wish you a happy new year and best wishes going into the new year. Okay? Uh, Hope you'll consider coming back again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, have a great day. Bye. And, folks, that's it. Sam DeMarco signing off from the Elephant in the Room on WJS 1320 AM. Happy New Year, everybody.